0: bird girl, and the man who followed the sun, an Athbascan Indian legend from Alaska. Velma Wallace is the author. This is chapter eight. The title of the chapter is A Race for Survival. All that day, Dago led his band down the path away from their camp. When the people complained about not being able or allowed to rest, he reminded them that the Chikwai men might be following them. As they stumbled after him, the women questioned Ago about the missing men. He refused to answer, not wanting to speak or think about what had happened. He would tell them later when they were safe, not now. Night came and the band moved quietly through the darkness, except for a few children who whimpered. Finally, Diagu recognized the secluded area that he knew was close to the Yukon. They still had miles to go, but they needed rest. We will camp here for the night, he said. Everyone except Diagu dropped exhausted to the ground and slept. He would not allow himself to sleep The memory of the dead men on the ground was too fresh in his mind. He wondered where the Chikwai were and whether they had found the camp. Did they suspect that the band had escaped? Were they close behind? If the Chikwai caught up with his people, they would have to fight. But this group of women, children, and old men was no match for five strong Chikwai. When the people awoke, Diagou allowed them to eat a small meal of dried moose meat with fat. As soon as they finished, he told them they had to leave right away. They protested, wanting an explanation, but Diagou only reminded them that the Chikwai could easily overtake them, covering much of the distance quickly by riding downriver in the canoe. The band did not argue with Diagou for he no longer seemed to be a carefree carefree boy. Overnight, he had become a man, desperate and demanding. That day, Diagu led his people toward the Yukon River, where they passed long enough to eat and rest. At dusk on the second day, Diagu decided that they had traveled far enough that the Chikwai would not find them. He allowed the band to camp, and he sat down to rest. Unable to stop himself, he fell asleep. Diagu slept through the night and well into the next day. When he awoke, the autumn sun was high in the sky. Diagu basked in the clear air, just beginning to warm. He heard someone moving about, opening his eyes. He was startled to see many people sitting in a circle around him. What is it, he asked. Embarrassed that they had been watching him sleep <clears throat> His mother spoke first You will tell us what happened Serenia said firmly in her low voice Gagu knew he could no longer hold back the truth The women whose husbands and sons were missing sat close to him Pleading with their eyes for him to deny their first, weird, their worst fears He realized that they already knew what happened, but they needed to hear him say it before they could believe it was true. He took a deep breath. All of them were killed by the Chikwai. The women began to grieve, some stifling their sobs with their hands and rushing away to cry, others sitting and weeping openly. Diagu looked to his mother for reassurance and saw tears sliding down her cheeks. He felt his own tears fall. Never had he seen such despair. The events of the past few days overwhelmed him and he did not know how to respond to his sorrow. Instead, he closed his eyes and turned his back to them. After a moment, he looked up at the blue sky. Behind him was greater pain than he had ever known. He was not prepared for this but his people needed him. He was the only able-bodied hunter left. The four other men in the band were very old. There were some young boys, but they did not possess the size nor the strength to run fast or to kill a large animal and haul it a long distance. The responsibility of being the band's leader lay upon Diagu, and he felt the weight of it already. How can I be their leader when I can barely contain my own pain, he asked himself. Then a hand touched his shoulder. He turned to look into the eyes of his mother. Son, do not be afraid, Shireenya said. Dagu looked shamefully around to see if others had heard. He was too proud to admit that he felt helpless. I'm not mother he said in a strained voice strained voice but she smiled knowingly and patted his shoulder taking a deep breath dagu turned back toward the band he had the four elderly men gather gathered into a pile all the bags of supplies that the people had brought with them from their old camp then the old men looked at dagu waiting he realized from then on they would always wait for him to make the first move that was what it meant to be a leader he he supposed he knelt down and opened the bags one by one inside were six hatchets ten knives a few bundles of dried moose meat and dried salmon some skins of sinew six large pieces of raw moose hide four fur blankets, needles, and sewing awls, one pair of moccasins, and a flint. D'Agu shook his head in disbelief. By this time of the year, his band had usually stockpiled great quantities of dried fish and smoked caribou and moose meat to sustain them through the long deadly winter. Now, not long before the first snowfall, they were almost without supplies. It was too risky to return to their campsite to retrieve more belongings. Besides, the Chikowee had probably been there already, taking what they could and burning the rest. One of the elderly men sensed Dagu's uncertainty. Do not be afraid, he said in a low voice. We will help you along the way. You are not alone. Dagu did not respond. When it came to dealing with people, he felt lost, for he had always been a loner. He understood more about the land and animals than about the people. Now the woman and their families watched him in expectation. Diagu could not help but resent their sudden dependence on him. This is to be my plight from now on, he said to himself. I'm not to have time to grieve for my own loss. I must do this task set before me, and save my own feelings for later. Dad, whose first job was to explain to the young boys that they would have to become hunters and possibly warriors, like their fathers and brothers who had died. The boys looked at him earnestly, frightened but determined to do their best. It will be a long. It will be. It will not be long before winter comes. Diagu told them. We will have to work hard to replace the things we left behind. There will be little time to train you in the ways of the animals, but I hope you've listened carefully to your fathers and will use what they taught you. As Dagu spoke, he saw his father's face. How many times had his father spoken to him sharply, trying to call him, call him out of his daydreaming? Often when Chiezen Chu had tried to teach him something, Diagu had only nodded his head, pretending to listen. Now Diagu wondered how much he and the others would suffer for that. The following days were busy ones in the new camp. The older women tore dry bark from the birch trees and weaving it together with strips of sinew made many bowls for cooking and storing food. Younger women scavenged the area in search of berries, edible plants, and rose hips left over from the summer. Even the youngest children were put to work collecting, collecting loose wood and tree fungus, which burned slowly and would keep their fires lit throughout the winter. Meanwhile, the four elderly men cut down young spruce trees and split the wood into thin slices, which they bent into frames for snowshoes. They soaked rawhide moose skin in water to soften it, then cut it into strips and wove it into snowshoes. The old men used the spruce wood to make long spears, bows, and arrows. All these weapons were finished. As these weapons were finished, Diagu used them to train the boys to shoot. Most of the boys learned easily, for they had watched their fathers and older brothers, and many had begun to practice already, but they lacked the strength to shoot heavy arrows with any real impact. Diagu knew that if any large animals were to be caught, he would have to do the killing. When he felt they were ready, Diagu decided to take the young boys on a hunt for moose. The woman had used snares to catch rabbits and squirrels and they fed the small band of hunters well to strengthen them for the journey. As the hunting party set out, Diagu recognized the mountains ahead of them as the ones he had longed to explore. He led the group toward these mountains, but they saw no animals except squirrels and a variety of birds. All that day they walked and still no game was to be found. Turning around, Diagu saw that he was far ahead of the boys. With impatience, he beckoned them to hurry. They had been taught not to complain and followed his instructions as best they could. Finally, well into the night, Diagu called them to halt. The boys gratefully laid down to rest. Diagu stood guard while the young hunter slept. He looked up at the glistening stars and the vastness of the night sky made him feel insignificant. Struggling to rid himself of the feeling, Diagu turned his thoughts to his mother. He worried about her and the other women he had left behind. What if Chikwai had followed them to Yukon? What if he and the boys returned to find all the women and children slain? For a moment, Diagu almost roused the boys and tended to go back. But instead he forced himself to relax. These were just foolish worries. The Chikwaii would not still be in this territory with winter coming on. His mind drifted back to the night when he had lost his father. I must not cry, he told himself, not now, perhaps later. But Diagu recalled every detail of the day when he and his father had knelt side by side cutting caribou meat and how the night and and of the night when he had sat by the river wondering how to tell his father he was leaving he could almost see the shadows slinking within the dark night and within that dark night and hear the sharp death-filled cry that he would never forget if it had not been for that cry dagu would have walked into his death I owe that man my life, he thought. And because he did not know which man had cried out to warn him, Diagu was indebted to them all. In return, he must care for all their families. Before he fell asleep that night, Diagu resolved to put aside his own desires and do his best to help the band survive, as his father had taught him. In spite of his vow to be more responsible, Diagu slept late into the morning. The boys hesitated before they dared to wake him. Diagu looked up at the sun and saw it was well into the sky. Why did you not wake me earlier? He demanded, scowling. Without giving them time to answer, he rushed the young boys on the day's hunt. Remember, animals move around when they're hungry. In the early morning, they search for food and water. We may have missed our chance, but we will look anyway. The boys nodded as they silently followed. It was an unusually warm day, and the hunters and as the hunters walked, they passed. They paused many times to drink from the streams they followed. In the late afternoon, they were about to round a bend in a creek when they saw a large moose. Dagu motioned to the boys to be still. Then he moved quietly along the side of the creek, hidden by overhanging willows. When he thought he was close enough, he fitted an arrow into his bow, pulled it back tight, took aim, and let go. A whoosh sound filled the air as the arrow flew to hit the target, hitting hard in the animal's side. The moose was surprised. Its body buckled slightly, but when it saw Dag coming toward it, loading another arrow, the moose turned and ran. In large strides, it picked up speed. Not wanting the wounded animal to escape, Diagu quickened his pace, shot, and caught the moose's right hind leg. Again, the animal swayed, but determined to get away, it regained its balance and ran shakily. Diagu shot more arrows futilely. Then, drawing close, he shot his last arrow, and it penetrated penetrated the moose's vital innards. The animal toppled. Before it could rise, Dagu was on top of it, his sharp knife cutting deep into the moose's flesh, severing the thick veins in its neck. The moose twitched violently as its life ebbed away, and Dagu was thrown to the ground. He jumped up, ready to defend himself at the moose's rose once more, but the animal lay still. The boys ran up to Diago, impressed with what their leader had done. Diago was overwhelmed with excitement, but managed to hide it, taking control of his emotions to instruct the boys on how to butcher the moose. First, they took out the guts and cut the neck from the body. Then Diago skinned the animal. Next, he told the boys to take off the front legs and the back legs. Unaccustomed to this kind of work but determined, the young hunters obeyed, removing the legs and cutting apart first the front of the body, then the back. Dagu pondered how to transfer all the moose meat back to their camp. He, desired, he decided to dry the meat, which would make it lighter to carry. The hunters built a hut-like wooden frame, which they covered with willow branches. There, they hung the quartered meat, building a fire underneath it, allowing the meat to dry in the smoke. After a few days, when the blood and the meat had dried, Diagu ordered two boys to return to camp and bring back five of the strongest women. Worried that the boys might get lost, he drew a map in the dirt, showing them what landmarks to look for and which creeks to follow. This is all part of your training, he told them, and the children nodded solemnly. The next night the women arrived, each had brought a rope of babichi, thickly stripped raw moose hide, with which to tie the meat onto her back. Dagu gave small yet heavy pieces of meat to the boys to carry on their backs, and gave larger portions to the women. The rest of the meat he hung in caches, high in the trees, where wolves and other predators could not reach it. Small camp robbers and ravens would pick at the meat, but wouldn't do much damage. The walk back was long and difficult, but neither the women nor the boys complained. They understood that the meat they carried would mean survival. When they arrived at camp, it was late at night, but some of those left behind and remained awake in case the hunters returned. After the women boys put down their loads of moose meat, they were fed white fish meat and broth. Dagu and the boys rested, for they would have to haul more meat the following day. It took a, more, a few more trips to transfer it all, but as the meat arrived, a cheerful mood spread through the camp. However, Diago was still worried. He knew the band's chances of surviving the winter were slim. Diago thought back to the caribou hunt when the Chikwaii had attacked. Usually when the band hunted, a few of the strong men were left behind to protect the women and children. But that time, all the men had gone in the hunt because they wanted to bring back as much meat as possible. No one had considered the Chikwaii might trespass into their territory. Diagu tried to comprehend why this had happened. Why had the cheekweed killed his father and the other men? What did they want? He knew that these two people had come to hate each other, but hadn't understood the destructive power of such hatred. Whatever the reason for the raid, Diagu knew that he would never again take his people's safety for granted. Soon, Diagu and his hunters brought down another moose. The meat from this bull was lean from the time it had spent in the rutting season, but they had to content themselves with whatever meat they caught, for winter was fast approaching. The small band built their winter camp near the mighty Yukon. Small huts of wood and moss were constructed along its banks, and the people knew not an idle moment as they foraged for wood and food. Dagus spent each day scouting for large game, but he and his young hunters found only the small animals that the women were catching. Ptarmigan, rabbits, squirrels, dusk, ducks, muskrats, and beavers. The women also set a trap in a nearby stream and caught many white fish which they dried. Besides food, the band needed more warm clothing. Every piece of fur or skin the woman found was turned into clothes or blankets. The skins for the two moose were tanned and fashioned into mittens and the bottoms of fur boots. While the women tanned and sewed, Diagu and the elders made more tools, building knives and hatchets of spruce wood and moose bones. Frost settled in, then the snow fell. Diago and his people finally were secure in their shelters. The following months were not as hard as Diago had envisioned. The band subsisted on their stories of food, also snaring rabbits. The band subsisted on their stores of food, also snaring rabbits in the snow, and spearing fish through the holes in the river ice. Diagu kept himself busy and tried not to think of his lost dream to follow the sun. Instead, as the winter wore, he became more hopeful about the band's future. Soon the young boys would be men and the girls would become women. In time, more witchin would be born and the band would grow again. However, this did not much cheer Diagu, who realized that he was more trapped in this way of life than ever before for.